morning, everyone. Might, uh, might get started again. Um, yeah, morning, everyone. For, for those who I haven't had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Dave, and I'm going to be uh, reading God's Word from the Bible for us today. Uh, but before I begin, um, please join me in prayer. Thank you, Father, for making yourself known to us, showing us the way of salvation through faith in your Son. We ask you now to teach us through your word so that we may be ready to serve you for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, we're going to be reading two passages this morning. So the first is from Acts 14, 26 to 15, 4, and the second from Galatians 2, 11 to 21, uh, which will follow on from last week's passage. Um, just a bit of context for, for the passage from Acts. So it's, it's just picking up from the end of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey um, as they head home to Antioch. So Acts 14. From Italia they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Certain people came down to Judea to, from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. And uh, turning to Galatians 2 from verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the, with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I die to the law, so that I might live, to, I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of God. Thanks, Dave, for reading. Hello, everyone. It is really wonderful to be with you this morning um, and uh, really good for us to be continuing through the book of Galatians. Uh, the history books tell us that um, really the 16th century Protestant Reformation, even today, it remains one of the most significant periods of intellectual and social and moral kind of upheaval and transformation that has ever been seen in Western civilization. Uh, on the really front edge of that Reformation movement was a German monk named Martin Luther. Uh, near the very top of a list of Bible books that helped Luther rediscover the gospel of God's grace was this letter from the Apostle Paul to the churches in Galatia. And at the very epicentre of the gospel that he rediscovered was an idea which is often described as the doctrine of justification by faith. In fact, Luther famously considered this to be the doctrine uh, by which a church either stands or falls. And if that is correct, and many people who have examined that issue since have agreed with him, if that is correct, I think it does make our passage today, and especially verses 15 and 16 that sit right in the centre of it all, some of the most important words that we could ever hear and then read and mark and learn and inwardly digest, to use the language of an old uh, Book of Common Prayer collect. Uh, these verses really are the linchpin of the letter. Everything uh, that comes before them is designed to lead us to them and everything that follows kind of arises as a result of them. And at their heart is this idea, this doctrine of justification by faith, which Luther considered so vitally important, not just for churches, but also for individuals. And so if you're following on the outline, you can see a couple of headings there. Uh, I'll let you know now that we're really not going to get to the third one at all. That was me being a bit ambitious on Thursday when I needed to get my outline in. We will talk about some implications, but just not in that third point. And so the first heading is Paul's opposition to Peter's hypocrisy. Last week, uh, we heard Paul begin to mount a really staunch defence of the authority of his gospel. It had authority first because in the back half of chapter 1, it was completely independent of all the other apostles. That is, he didn't learn it from them, he didn't receive it from them, he didn't consult them when he first went out to preach it. 
And it had authority second because in the front half of chapter 2, it was also in complete fellowship with the other apostles. That is, when they eventually all got together up in Jerusalem, the other apostles recognised the grace of God that had been given to Paul. And they gave him the right hand of fellowship. And they agreed that he had been as much entrusted by God with preaching to the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, as Peter had been with preaching to the Jews. And so Paul's gospel had authority because it was independent of the apostles and it was in fellowship with the apostles. There's one more part of Paul's story that helps establish, beyond a shadow of doubt, the authority of his gospel. And it has to do with a particular occasion when the apostle Peter got things horribly wrong. It's described for us here in this passage, chapter 2, verse 11. Peter got things horribly wrong and it was the Apostle Paul who had to correct him. Now, to be clear, the thing that Peter got wrong was not anything to do with basic gospel doctrine. It wasn't as if he had begun to preach a new message about how people are saved. He had, however, begun to act in a way that was not in line with that gospel that both he and Paul agreed on. It was inconsistent with that gospel. Now, it happened when Peter came to Antioch. That was where Paul was based in in the book of Acts. All his missionary journeys kind of set out from Antioch. And Peter came to Antioch, followed sometime later by who Paul describes in verse 12 as certain men from James. James being the brother of Jesus and one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Now, before the men from James came, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles by which that means kind of Gentile believers, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who weren't Jewish by background. Before Peter came, uh, sorry, before these men came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But after the men from James came, Peter changed his behaviour completely and he began to separate and withdraw from the Gentile believers because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. That's what Paul says. And by the circumcision group, I think he's talking about the people that we read about in Acts chapter 15, at the start of Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 14, the first missionary journey that Barnabas and Paul do together, by the way, through the very regions of Galatia that Paul's now writing to. And then the very next verse, chapter 15, verse 1, this is what we read up on the screen. Certain people came down to Antioch from Judea and they were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So do you see how it fits together? Paul is in Antioch, Peter has come to join him and sometime later there's this group from Judea, from Jerusalem, claiming in some way to be from James. But telling the believers that unless a person has been circumcised, they cannot be saved and under pressure from this group, this circumcision group, Peter begins begins to buckle and he starts to kind of withdraw and to separate from the Gentile believers. Why was this such a big problem? Surely there are more important matters to get upset about. I mean, does it really matter who eats with who? Is this just an example of kind of classic Christian nitpicking? Finding fault on a matter of freedom? Uh, Could there not be room here for some generous disagreement? Uh, Does it really concern us who Peter eats with or who he doesn't eat with? According to the Apostle Paul, though, it really does matter a great deal. Because, you see, the moment that Peter starts to withdraw from fellowship with Gentile believers who haven't been circumcised, 
he actually reverses the whole gospel and completely undoes the achievements of Christ. For now that Christ has given himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, now that Christ has been raised from the dead by God the Father, and remember that was the gospel Paul sketched out for us, even in the very opening verses of this letter. But now that those things have happened, the old distinctions of circumcised and uncircumcised, they have become just secondary matters of human history and culture. They remain one of the ways that Jews and Gentiles are different to each other. But for a Jew and a Gentile who have both trusted in Christ, those differences should have no bearing at all on the practical expression of loving Christian fellowship and acceptance. To do anything else would be to make circumcision more important than Christ. But you see, twice in this letter, Paul insists that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Also in this letter, Paul says, look, Jew or Gentile, neither of them are there, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. But you see, by beginning to separate himself from Gentile believers who haven't been circumcised, Peter is not acting in line with the gospel. Even worse, it's not just Peter who's getting it wrong. Uh, all the other Jews join in with his hypocrisy, even Barnabas, who really should have known better because, after all, he had been with Paul on that first missionary journey. He had seen firsthand God's work among the Gentiles. But even Barnabas is led astray. Now, let me tease out four implications briefly. I hope these are useful for all of us, but perhaps especially if you've been following events in the Anglican Church of Australia this week, you might see the relevance. First, Christian faith can never properly be reduced to the merely intellectual, the merely doctrinal, as if entry to the kingdom of heaven and eternal life is by theological precision and nothing else. I mean, don't get me wrong, theology matters, but theology is always practical. Life and doctrine go together, belief and behaviour go together even in a matter as seemingly insignificant as who we eat with. And so Peter's gospel may have been on the straight and narrow, but once his behaviour stopped being in line with that gospel, he needed Paul to step in and correct him because practical godliness matters. Second, because theology is practical and life and doctrine go together, some things can only properly be evaluated after some really careful theological reflection. Can we know, for example, that in the book of Acts, Paul has Timothy circumcised, but earlier on in Galatians chapter 2, he delighted and, and kind of boasted in the fact that Titus refused to be circumcised. We're dealing with the same behaviour here, but what makes it right for Timothy and wrong for Titus? But we can only figure that out with some really careful theological reflection. Prayerfully done by the people of God, carefully reading the word of God in full dependence on the spirit of God. 
third. Sometimes the greatest pressure for Christians to act in ways that are not in line with the gospel comes from those who are convinced that they themselves are faithfully serving the cause of Christ. I mean, I take it that was true for the, the certain men who came from James. I take it that, at least in their own minds, they were genuinely faithfully seeking the salvation of the Gentiles. And the same will be true for us as well. Sometimes the greatest pressure to act hypocritically to the gospel, to act not in line with the gospel, that pressure will come not from the world, but from those who claim to be fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, finally then, it, it actually takes great courage as well as great wisdom to stand firm and to contend for the truth of the gospel and it must be contended for in every generation. We, we mustn't take it for granted that the God-given circumcision-free gospel of salvation will be preserved without effort. Always there will be other messages to take people away from acting in line with what Christ has achieved for us by his death and resurrection. And so in every age, the line must be held. And we must be so thankful to God that when Peter and all the other Jews, even Barnabas, was going the wrong direction, the Apostle Paul courageously contended for the truth of the gospel for people such as us, the vast majority of whom, perhaps every one of us, I'm not totally certain, are not Jewish, but Gentile. It was for people like us that Paul contended so hard for the gospel. But you see, because Peter's error has been made publicly, Paul's correction is public. Verse 14, he said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, Peter, rightly, in the past, you have been willing to eat with Gentiles, effectively living like one of them, even though you're not. How is it now that you're flipping the script and forcing them to live like us by being circumcised? That is not at all the gospel that we believe. That is not at all the gospel we both proclaim. So you see, now we come to our second point uh, in verses 15 and 16, the reason for Paul's opposition. And, and arguably, these really are the two most important verses of the letter, even if the only bit of Galatians that had survived to us down through the centuries was verses 15 and 16. I, I suspect that with enough time and enough careful thought, maybe the rest could be worked out by implication. But these verses, they are the foundation of Paul's gospel. These verses are, are the reason for his very strong opposition to Peter's hypocrisy. And he begins with a statement that kind of sets out a truth that both he and Peter agree on entirely. So verse 15, and, and these are such important verses, we'll kind of work them on the screen for a little while. So verse 15, we who are Jews by birth are not Gentile sinners. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, straight away, there are three words here, or, or three sets of words that are kind of introduced to us for the first time in the letter. All of them are important, even just in this verse, which we can tell because all three of them are repeated three times in this verse. But they're also important for the rest of the letter as well. 
So let's take some time to try and understand them. The first key word is the word justified. Uh, and this is a word that comes kind of from the law courts. Uh, it's a judge's declaration that a person is innocent. Uh, I kind of skimmed the news. The only law court case that I could really think of that I've heard a lot about recently, and I, I checked the news to see if I could find any others, but the one involving Ben Robert Smith and a couple of the newspapers, I don't really know too much about it. I haven't paid heaps of attention. But obviously, um, the, the, it's the role of the judge to make a determination as to whether or not the accused is guilty or innocent. That's how court cases work, isn't it? That's the judge's role. Um, if the judge determines that they are guilty, he will convict them. If the judge determines they are innocent, he will acquit them. He will declare them not guilty, innocent. In Bible words, he will justify them. And so when Paul talks about people being justified, therefore, he's talking about people being declared innocent and not guilty by God, who is the judge of all the earth. Well, that's justified. As well as that, though, we've got the phrase, the works of the law. In the context of Galatians so far, this is clearly the category into which Paul places any requirement of circumcision for Gentiles to be saved. Although I think it's important that Paul doesn't only talk here about circumcision, but rather uses this broader category, the works of the law. Because actually one of the arguments as the letter goes on is that if a person is going to go down that path of circumcision as a requirement for salvation, that requirement can't just be cherry-picked in isolation from everything else that's in the law. Now, the requirement for one entails the requirement for all. If, if you're going to obey circumcision, you have to obey everything. So there's the works of the law. Finally, then, there is the phrase, by faith in Christ Jesus, which simply means by trusting in, by depending on, by putting one's confidence in Christ Jesus. Well, hang on, how, why, how does that work? Why does that work? How does people trusting in Christ, relying on Christ, mean that God can declare them innocent? Are we not just kind of playing a legal word game and doing a word salad kind of thing that you hear about in the news at the moment? Especially when we know everything that the Bible teaches about how we all deserve God's condemnation because of sin. Meaning both our own sinful natures, our naturally kind of rebellious disposition towards God, but also the actual sins that we all commit. How does trusting in Christ mean that sinners can be declared innocent by God? I mean, here is the nub of the gospel. This is the, the kind of heart and soul of all true Christian faith. If we understand this, we understand the gospel. If we don't, we won't. Remember chapter 1, verse 4. Uh, right at the start of the letter, Paul talked about Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. He gave himself in his death on the cross. But he gave himself for our sins, which means he died as our substitute in our place, on our behalf, to take away the curse of God, the anger of God, which is properly directed at our sins. 
there's a lot on that screen. And I know it's been a bit of a detour, but now we know what all the words mean. We'll try and put it together and hear the gospel that both Peter and Paul agreed on entirely. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, we know that sin is not declared innocent by God by obeying all the requirements of the Old Testament law, but rather by trusting in and depending on Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins in his death on the cross. What a remarkable, wonderful, life-changing piece of knowledge to have. Do you feel that? Is there any other piece of knowledge known to man that could rival the significance of this one for helping each one of us be prepared for the day that we will stand before our Lord and Maker and Judge. But since this is what Peter and Paul both know, they both agree on this, I mean, the, the next sentence is a no-brainer, isn't it? We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the Lord, no one will be justified. Actually, it's even stronger than that, kind of at the end of the sentence there. It doesn't really work in English. When you're trying to translate these things from Greek to English, sometimes you have to juggle them around a little bit. Literally, what Paul says at the end there is, because by works of the law, all people will not be justified. We have to flip it and say no one will be justified, but Paul says all people will not be justified by the works of the law. In other words, there's no way for Jews to be justified, which is separate from how Gentiles are justified. There's no way for Gentiles to be justified, which is separate from how Jews are justified. There is one way for them both to not be justified, which is by the works of the law. And there is one way for them both to be justified, which is by faith in Christ Jesus, who gave himself for our sins. Now, in light of that, do you see the vitally important decision that stands perpetually before every one of us? Simply put, What is our plan for when, at the last, we stand before our maker and judge? What is our plan? What will our defence be in that moment before we hear God declare whether or not he finds us innocent or guilty? Will it be circumcision? or any other work of the Old Testament law? Will it be any other works at all that we would strive to do in order to overcome our sins and be found innocent by God? No. Down that path lies only condemnation. For remember the end of verse 16? By the works of the law, all people will not be justified. The only way for a person to be justified, whether Jew or Gentile, it makes no difference. The only way that God will declare a person innocent 
is by faith in Christ Jesus. It is so undeserved. As the 16th century Protestant reformers might have put it, justification is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's by depending on the one who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. And friends, the way to do that is simply to speak to God in prayer, to admit and to ask, to admit to God that because of sin, what you deserve is condemnation, to ask God to forgive you on account of the fact that Christ died for you. Uh, There's a prayer up on the screen, uh, and I'm going to lead us in prayer by praying these words out loud. And if, as you've been listening this morning, you know that God is calling you to put your trust in Christ, uh, as I pray out loud, will you pray with me by speaking these words to God silently in your heart and mind? Let me lead us in prayer. Dear God, uh, I am not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. And I need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me so that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me so that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. Well, friends, if you just prayed that prayer with me, I want to let you know that something really momentous has just taken place between you and God. And I know that many of us won't have prayed it just then, but we'll have prayed something like this in the past. But if you did just pray that prayer with me, something really momentous has just happened between you and God. You have been justified. You have been justified, not by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus, who gave himself for our sins. And you might have come to church this morning still carrying before God a burden of guilt because of sin. You can head back home knowing that that burden has been lifted from you. Knowing the joyful assurance that by faith in Christ Jesus, your sins have been forgiven. Your debt has been cancelled. And God regards you as innocent before him. You don't need to wait anxiously now for the last day wondering whether or not God will accept you. Uh, Already, by your trust in Christ, you have been justified. There's all sorts of implications that flow from that, and Paul starts to list out some of them in verses 17 to 21. I I said before, we're not going to get to those now. But friends, do let us sit together in just the wonder, the extraordinary wonder of God's mercy and grace. And let it feed our thanksgiving for all God's kindness to us. And let it feed our joy as we realise through Christ just how much is now ours. And let it feed our assurance about standing before the Lord our God. And let us feed our devotion to the one who loved us 
and who gave himself for us. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for what he has done when he gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. And we pray that you would help us to be those who trust in him, who abandon every attempt to be right in your sight by our own works. Heavenly Father, build our assurance in Christ, build our joy and our thankfulness in Christ. Help our devotion to him to be really rich and help us not to forget all the benefits that are ours through him. We pray it in his name. Amen.